Jonah was so scared. Hello, Crossroads. Welcome with us today. We want to welcome also our Shelby Campus. Can we give a hand to our Shelby Campus as they're joining us? We're thankful for the time of worship together as one church in many places. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 774, Jonah chapter 1. If you're here and uh, you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure that every person has a copy of God's Word. We're going to walk right through a text together. And so we want to make sure that we engage together what God's Word says, that we leave not with with man's words, but with God's words. And so we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1 again as we're in this series called Jonah, and we've titled it Run to Rescue. Now as we started this series, we, we've talked about this character, this Old Testament prophet Jonah, who was called by God to go to the city called Nineveh. If you remember in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, it says, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city. And we said that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was the biggest, baddest city of the day. It was the arch enemy of Israel. It was the number one enemy that could overthrow them. And so there was a lot of danger involved in that. And as Jonah heard that command, Jonah doesn't respond in obedience. No, the text tells us instead he runs. He runs to a port city called Joppa where he jumps on a boat to head 2,500 miles away, most likely, to the city called Tarshish. And so he's on the boat in Tarshish, and we said uh, that just like Jonah, you and I have that same reality, right? We, we, don't, we don't run to rescue. We run away from God. That We're natural-born runners, and that we run from God in sin, we run from a holy, good, faithful, great God. And we said that God, while Jonah looks at revenge, God looks to rescue. Not just to rescue of Nineveh, but the rescue of you and I, of our lives, of Jonah's life. That, that Jonah is not just trying to get, that God is not just trying to get Jonah to do something for him. God is trying to do something in Jonah. And that's the story of this book Jonah. Last week we looked in verses 4 through 6 that God gets Jonah's attention through a great storm. God uses a great storm. He hurls, it says, the storm onto the sea. And we said last week that, that God is willing, that God is actually committed to breaking every ship that would take us away from him. That, that God is committed to taking every ship and breaking it that would lead us away from him. Whether you're a follower of Christ and maybe you've stepped back a little bit today or maybe you're here and you don't know Christ and you were invited, God is committed to taking every ship and breaking it to get your attention, to get my attention. That's the story of Jonah and we're going to pick it up and kind of review a little bit in verse 4. But before we do, I want us to realize, we said the last couple of weeks that Jonah is a really interesting book. And the reason it's interesting is because it has a prophetic force but it really is poetic in nature. It speaks like a story, but there's a lot of poetry, meaning there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of contrast and a lot of repetition. And one of those words that we see repeated over and over again is this word great. Right, we have a great God calling Jonah to a great city, 
not great in nature, but great in size and immensity. And then he throws a great storm. It's the Hebrew word gadol. And if you read the story of Jonah over and over again, this word great is going to come up over and over and over again. Today, we're going to look at this idea of not only a great storm, but a great storm that leads to a great fear. Now, I don't think there's any accident that Jonah, in this story, talks about fear. You know why? Because when we're running from God, one of the things that causes us to run from God is fear. Fear plays a major part of you and I running from God. What do I mean? Well, if we go back to the beginning, we see that fear played a part in the initial running from God that you and I in Adam and Eve portrayed. Now, you might say, Dave, we always seem to go back to the beginning. Let me tell you why that is. Because we can trace every problem back to the beginning of the story. We go to the beginning because it's the beginning. And it tells us why this is not God's fault. We live in a world where everybody tends to blame God for everything. Well, it's God's fault. But the beginning tells us that's not the truth. That the issue wasn't God, the issue was man. The issue was fear. What what do I mean by that? Well, if you remember in the beginning, Adam and Eve had this relationship with God, and that relationship was based upon a type of fear. But not fear in the sense of being afraid, fear in the sense of awe of their creator. And we find in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent comes, remember Satan himself comes in the form of a serpent, and, and, and And the temptation happens around the tree that God tells them not to eat. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 3, what the serpent says is this, that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. What, What did the serpent use to build up in Adam and Eve to cause them to sin against God himself? It was fear. It was fear believing that God was holding out on them. They were afraid more about the serpent than they were about God. They were afraid, no longer a fear of God holy, but a fear of God holding out on them. And so what did they do? They took of the fruit and ate. And after this, we see the result. And the text tells us, really, the answer. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, listen to these words. It says, and they heard the, the sound of the Lord God. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Remember, we said that is not a question of location, it's a question of the heart. God there is getting at the heart, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. Notice there is fear. At the fall, we find fear beginning to be convoluted. All of a sudden, sin convolutes fear. Fear now doesn't become holy, it becomes messy. Fear now doesn't look the way it was intended. Fear that can be good now becomes bad. It's fear not toward a holy God, but now fear toward a system of life in the fall. Now this practical outworking of fear. We see all the time in our lives, don't we? We feel the immensity of this reality of fear. What what do I mean? Well, take, for example, for some of us, we're afraid of heights. That's an outworking of the fallen world. We're afraid of heights. For some, you're afraid of spiders. We call it arachnophobia. Maybe for you, you're afraid of airplanes. 
and you're afraid to get on the airplane and to fly. For some, you're afraid of clowns. Especially in this time of the year. Afraid of clowns with red balloons, especially. In sewer systems. Right, there's tons of fears. Fears of darkness, fears of death. Fear comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors now. Yet fear, that same fear, can also be an extremely valuable gift. What do I mean? Well, if a dog begins to chase you when you're on your run, what happens? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna better your mile time. Why? Because that dog chasing you, you're getting out of there. Right? And so you're going to run a little faster. There's a healthy fear that you and I can have. Right? That fear can be tremendously healthy. We teach our kids, don't touch the hot stove. Why? Because we want them to be af- afraid that if they touch it, they could get burned. We teach our kids, don't play in the street because you could get hit by a car. What we mean by that is not that we want our kids to lay in bed at night and be afraid of the stove or be afraid of the yard or the, or the sidewalk. No, we want them to have a holy, healthy fear towards something that's practically dangerous. That's the image of fear. Fear can have value, but fear can also be dangerous, right? Because we can be afraid of things like failure. We can be afraid of things like failing people, or or maybe not only failing, but a fear of other people and what they think about us, and we can build insecurities based upon what other people think about us. We hear it all the time, right? In ministry, we hear people say, you know, I just... I feel paralyzed right now. I feel, I feel numb to reality. I feel numb to the circumstances of life. I feel numb to this situation. What are they really saying? They're saying I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what I see. I'm afraid of what is going on. Now the question is, how do we tell the difference between a fear that is good and healthy and a fear that might be bad and detrimental? Well, the answer is in our response. Right, our response gives an indication into what fear is doing to us, whether it's healthy or not. If you remember uh, last week, we talked about this equation. This equation went like this. It went, it went events plus responses equal outcomes. E plus R equals O. And it's a well-known psychology uh, equation, right? It's this idea that we, we have events that happen in our lives. We can't control them. All we can control is our responses. And we talked about that God calls us in our responses to be faith filled. And so we're called to live by faith. Responses, our reactions, are an indicator into how we view the fear that we feel. In fact, I would dare say our responses indicate what we believe about our fear. They indicate what we believe about the fear. Let me give you an illustration of this. I remember years ago, when we lived in Maryland, I was outside mowing the lawn. Now, I've had really bad luck with lawnmowers. Um, I've broken many of them. Uh, I don't understand how it happens, but I don't know why, but it happens to me where my lawnmowers just break down. So I had this lawnmower that was being held up by a bungee cord. So the mower deck was actually being held up to uh, the, the corner of the wheel, kind of on the edge, by a bungee cord. So I was mowing this way, and it was working. Ingenious. Duct tape and bungee cords do everything. It's all you need. And so I was out mowing, and, uh, and as I ended mowing, I noticed in the yard this black thing on the ground. And I thought for sure it was a bungee cord. And so I looked down in the mower, and the bungee cord wasn't there, so I thought I, I dropped off the bungee cord. And so I went out to this black streak in the yard, to grab the bungee cord. I get over to where it is and I walk over and I reach down to pick it up and this head raises up and goes It's not my bungee cord. Now I want to be real vulnerable with you for a moment and this is uh, something that can come back to haunt me from many of the men in this room 
But I have to confess to you, as I reached down and this head raised up, because I was expecting to be a bungee cord, I reached down to get it, and immediately when its head raised, I went, ah! Now, I had two of my sons in the yard with me. At the time, my youngest son, Isaac, uh, who was now 13 at the time, he was about eight, was in the yard. And he goes, Dad, what's going on over there? And I said, hey, son, go get the shovel. Right? And you know what I want to do with this is I want to kill the snake. And he doesn't go get the shovel. Instead, he runs over and says, what is it? I want to see it. That kid, his mom must have taught him that. <laughs> and so he runs over and he looks and he goes, Dad, that's so cool. It's a snake. Can I pick it up? And I said, no, son, you can't pick it up. Go get the shovel. He said, Dad, can we keep it? Like, we have an empty aquarium. Can we put it in the aquarium? No, go get the shovel. So he goes to the shovel, and I said, I said now, son, watch this. Let me show you how to kill this thing. Bata! That didn't work because I missed, and then I did it again. And finally, I, I killed the snake. Now, the picture of those two responses tells you everything you need to know about fear, doesn't it? When I reached down to see this snake, didn't know it was a snake, my reaction said I was afraid. But my fear was a, 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 a afraid fear, a scared fear. When my son walked over to the same thing, realizing it's a snake, he looks at it and says, how cool, that's awesome, can we keep it? Our reactions give indication about whether fear is healthy or not. This is true in our lives. Whether fear is beneficial or not, our reactions give us this. And right and wrong fears and right and wrong responses will drive our lives. This is what we're going to see in the story of Jonah. We see right fears and wrong fears, and we see right responses and wrong responses. Take a look with me, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 4. We, we looked at verses 4 through 6, but I want to pick it up there as we look at the rest of this, uh, this chapter together. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down fast asleep, so the captain came and said to him, Arise, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, uh, tempestuous. And said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is, great, it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, I can't say that word, against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have, have, you have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging it says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about these sailors, these mariners. These are most likely Phoenician sailors. The Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean Sea in that era. And these Phoenician sailors were, were pretty bad guys. I mean, they were probably robbing many people out of profits. They were taking supplies and cargo, most likely furniture, from one port to another. They were probably cheating the system. Their, their, their ship was trade valuable, but it was battle ready. Many of them probably even created battles and had battles on the sea. And so these were some hardened sailors. They were away from their family for most of, the, most of the year doing this work. We know that they're also polytheists. What do I mean? Well, they worship more than one God. We see that they call out to many gods. What we know about that is this. Many in the, 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 the Near East of the day, when we talk about being polytheists, the Greco-Roman world was polytheistic. And what they believed was that there was utter chaos on the world, and the gods held the chaos at bay. And so the gods had some control over the chaos of life. But here's the problem. Is if a god got angry at you, or if a god didn't like you, then they could release the chaos. And so at any moment, whenever chaos would overflow the earth, they thought this could be coming from the gods. The gods could, are, are releasing chaos to get their attention. And this is how they view this. They view it as if the gods are trying to get their attention by releasing chaos. Now, we're going to look at uh, this three different ways. We see responses and fear in three different ways. First of all, number one, we see wrong fear with a wrong response. We see the wrong type of fear with the wrong response. What they do is they run to take control of the situation. T take a look at verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. Notice that. They're afraid. So what do they do? They cry out to their gods, and then immediately they begin to throw the cargo into the sea in order to calm it down. What, what are they doing? They are paying off the gods. They're attempting to pay off these gods to, to kind of settle the score by getting rid of their profit. And so they're saying, if this is against us, let's deal with this. We're going to give you the profit so, so that you then cause the storm to cease, whatever God it is. Notice they take things into their own hands. Things aren't going well, and so they need to take control. They have foxhole prayers here, right? They call to the gods, and then they immediately begin to work. They begin to throw this stuff overboard. And then we find the captain going to Jonah. Now, we looked at all this last week. The captain goes to Jonah and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, I don't know about you, but that's that question isn't really a question, it's a statement, isn't it? I don't know if your mom or dad did this. My mom, my dad died when I was eight. My mom, when I was younger, she would ask questions that were really explanation points. Right, she would say, what are you doing? And what she's not saying is, I need to answer that. She knows what I'm doing. And so that's the picture here, is they look, this captain looks at Jonah and says, verse six, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you sleeping for? Arise, call out to your God. So they go to Jonah to try to solve this problem. Something's going on. Notice they're trying to solve the problem. Here is Jonah who doesn't want to pray, doesn't want to seek God, doesn't want to hear from God. He is giving God the silent treatment, and yet they run to him. He doesn't really respond. The text reveals that because what they do next is very interesting. Notice verse 7. It says, so they come to one another, 
And they say, let us cast lots so that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, in their day, when you would cast lots, lots weren't just sticks. What, what lots were, were actually stones. And one side of the stone will be painted black, and one side of the stone was painted white. And what they do is cast the stones out, and whoever would get the most dark sides of the stones, which represented the evil of the day, whoever got the, 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 the black sides was considered to be the culprit. And so it was basically like rolling dice. It was rolling dice. And so they would roll the stones, and if it was on the dark side, the dark side of the gods is coming against you. That's the image of it. And if you got the white side, you're not, right? You're, you're, you're clear. So they began to cast lots. That's how it was done. And they would throw these rocks out, and they would see then who the perpetrator was. Now, of course, Jonah probably is repelled by this whole thing, isn't he? I mean, he's a Hebrew. He, he, he follows the God of heaven. He's probably repelled. But what can he say? He's been asleep in the bottom of the ship. There's nothing he can say against them, and so he doesn't say a word. Instead, he allows them to go along with this. He goes along with them casting these lots, and it says that the lot falls on Jonah. Now, let's stop here for a moment. God can do whatever he wants, right? Like, if God can speak through a donkey, he can use lots to reveal something. Multiple times in Scripture, we see lots being used as a decision for even God's work. And so God is able and big enough to use lots to create his plan and system. God is sovereign of that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But what I find interesting here is not that they cast lots. That makes sense. That's what they would have done. What I find ironic is this. Now, don't, don't follow me here. What I find ironic is that nobody thinks it's them. Isn't it ironic that they're casting lots in the first place? Like no one on this ship is saying, it must be me. I'm the one that has sinned. I'm the one that's wronged. I've got to get this right. Not even Jonah, which tells us where his self-righteousness is. No one is proclaiming to say, I've got this wrong. I need to get right. They're in fact saying somebody else must be wrong. They begin to play the blame game. Right? It's somebody else that has done wrong. Someone else has sinned worse than I. Someone else deserves this storm that has come upon us. How, is, how easy it is for us to have the wrong fear that leads to a wrong response. Where we begin to say, it's not me, it must be my spouse. It must be my kids. It's this crazy job that you've given me. It's where I live. If I could just live somewhere else, life would be better. And we begin to have the wrong fear. We're afraid of what life is throwing at us. And we begin to respond with the wrong response saying it's got to be everybody else's fault and so what do they do they run to control let's fix it let's find out let's cast lots and for many of us we live our life in that same way well something is wrong I need to fix it I grab things by the way nothing wrong with trying to uh, fix our life in, in many ways by the way God calls us to take responsibility for our lives but if we're not then seeking God in fear in a healthy fear then, then we're, we're responding incorrectly Right, it begins by having a healthy fear of God that then leads us to the right response. But here, that's not what happens. There's a wrong fear that leads to the wrong response. Now notice what happens here. Finally, Jonah speaks. For the first time in this entire story, Jonah actually speaks. Take a look at verse, verse 8. So they said, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where'd you come from? What country are you from? And what are the people are you? Verse 9, here's Jonah. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Notice that. 
I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Here we find Jonah talking for the first time, and what we get is he had the right fear, but he had the wrong response. That's point number two. We have the right fear, but we have the wrong response. Here is Jonah running from the God who is in control. He's not running to control. No, instead he's running to the God who, he is running from the God who is in control. Jonah here speaks for the first time and he says, I'm a God fear. I don't know about you, I read that and that's a bit funny. How much fear is he showing of the Lord? And yet he calls himself a God-fearing man. He's a self-proclaimed God-fearer. He says, I am a Hebrew, I'm a person of God, and I fear the Lord. By the way, he is making a very big statement here. If you like to underline in your Bible, underline there in verse nine the phrase, the God of heaven. Notice that phrase. That phrase, the God of heaven, shows up 22 times in the Old Testament. Do you know that every single time the phrase, the God of heaven, shows up, you know what it references? Every time it references the sovereignty of God. In other words, Jonah is saying, I fear the Lord who is ultimately sovereign over all. Now, what do we mean by sovereignty? Sovereignty is kind of a confusing thing. It's a deep theological reality. When we say sovereignty, it does not mean that God does everything. Right, some people, that, that's called determinism. It's the idea that God does everything. That's not what we believe. God is sovereign in the sense that he doesn't do everything, but God certainly knows everything, and God rules over everything. God doesn't cause everything that happens to happen. But God is certainly sovereign over it, meaning he has the right and authority to engage and do as he pleases. As, as one author said, God is able to do what he pleases with whomever he chooses whenever he wishes. That's sovereignty. Not that God does everything, but God is able to do what he pleases with whomever he chooses whenever he wishes. God is sovereign. God has authority. God is in control. God knows all and is able to work and is at work in the midst of it. That's God. That's sovereignty. So here we find Jonah saying, I am a Hebrew. I am a God-fear. I trust in the God. Here they were, afraid of a God they didn't know. And here's Jonah saying he's afraid of a God he knows fully well. And yet his response is not correct. Here we find the ped pedigree of Jonah, uh, the, the, this, this good guy status as a person of God, an Israelite, and yet what we find is right fear doesn't always lead to right response. Just because we have the right fear doesn't necessarily me mean we respond correctly. Let me ask you a question here. How many of us believe that God is sovereign over all? How, how many of us believe that God reigns? Shelby, raise your hand as well if you don't mind. Right, we believe that. Now, the question is, and I've been there, right, I believe that. How many of us actually live as if God is truly in control and sovereign? How many of us in our decisions actually think, God, you're in control, I need to come to you. God, this happens, I need to come to you and respond well. Right, for most of us, theologically, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that he's in control. And yet, for some of us, we don't live as if he is in control. Or, even worse yet, we live as if he's not in control. And we do whatever we want, and we go our own way, and we say, God, you're there, but you're not really in control. Or, we even go one step further. And all of us have done this in our lives, if we're being honest. 
We go one step further and say, God, I want your control, but only when I ask you. Only when I come to you do I want your control. Only when I come to you do I want you to take the reins for me. Other than that, let me take the driver's wheel. And so we live this life believing that God is in control, sovereign, but, but not actually living as if God is in control. That's Jonah. He has the right fear, but his response is the opposite. I, I love what R.C. Sproul says. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, he wrote this. He says, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. What a great quote. We salute the sovereignty of God, but yet we live as if we really are sovereign overall. Now, what's ironic here in this story is that Jonah is to the point now where his understanding of God has not caused him to be obedient, but has actually caused him to be apathetic. Right? The way he's responding is to say, I just give up. I don't like what God is doing, and so I'm not going to care to follow him. I'm going to go my own way. And here we find an apathetic Jonah asleep in the bottom of the ship. Everybody else is saying, let's go fix it. The sailors are saying, let's fix the problem. Jonah here is saying, who cares? God is sovereign. I know him, but I'm not going to follow him. This is disobedience. By the way, disobedience reveals a defective fear of God, doesn't it? Disobedience reveals a defective fear of God. Why? Because we say we fear him, but we really don't fear him in a holy, right way. That's Jonah. Now lastly, we now turn not to Jonah. By the way, this story isn't done. But this is the reason I love the book of Jonah. I hope you are as well, this journey. I love the book of Jonah because I see myself through it all the time. And I find this God of great grace pursuing a runaway. I've been there. I'm there sometimes throughout the week. And here is a God of great grace and mercy chasing down a person of God. Uh, it's a believer in God, a God fear, and God is coming after him. And yet we find this story doesn't end here because Jonah doesn't respond correctly. But where the, the focus goes is not, not on Jonah, but the focus goes to the sailors. And what we find in these sailors is what I would call point three, and that is this. We find in these sailors a right fear and a right response. All of a sudden, they see what's happening, and they run to the God who is in control. Now, if you read the story, you would think at the confession of Jonah, Jonah's saying, it's me, it's my problem, it's my fault. You would think the storm ends here. But the storm doesn't end. In fact, it says it grows even worse. Why? Because God is trying to get both the sailors and Jonah's attention. And so the storm doesn't end. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 10. It says, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I want you to notice the phrase, it says the men were exceedingly afraid. Can I tell you what that says literally in the Hebrew? It actually says, and the fearful men became fearfully afraid. It's a very, very interesting sentence. In other words, these men who were fearful now began to change their fear a bit. Because no longer were they afraid of the storm, now they realize this is the God of Jonah that's causing this, and their fear turns, and the fearful men became exceedingly fearful. The fearful men now had another thing to fear, and that was this God, this God, the creator. In fact, I want to show you the progression here. Follow the progression. Notice in verse 5, it says, then the mariners were afraid. What were they afraid of in verse 5? They were afraid of the storm, weren't they? The storm came, they're afraid of the storm. Go to verse 10, notice the progression, verse 10. It says, 
What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. What are they afraid of now? They're afraid of the fact that this creator of the storm has made this storm come because of Jonah. Now fast forward to verse 16. Notice the progression. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice the progression. They, they go from fearing the storm to fearing the creator of the storm to fearing the God of all. There's a progression of their fear. The sailors here realize that they're in the crossfire between God and Jonah. And this God is doing what is right. This God is coming after Jonah. Now we find a right fear with the right response. What, what do I mean? I want to look at four things before we end. And I, what I want to do is build this right from the text, this progression of what a right fear and a right response does. Num number one, this, number one, when one changes the object of their fear, it changes the response of their fear. Right, no longer do they see this as just the storm. Now they see it as the God over the storm who's at, in absolute full sovereign control over all this. And all of a sudden we see this perspective changing. Now we find them changing the object of their fear for, to being the storm and potentially these false gods to being the God who is creator of all, the God of Jonah. I want to illustrate this for a moment. Here's what happens. I've got these uh, binoculars. These are my dad's binoculars. I don't have many things on my dad. My dad died when I was eight, but one of the things I have are these old binoculars, and my, my boys have played with them. And I don't know if you ever looked through binoculars before, right? But they magnify, don't they? And for many of us, in the situations and circumstances of our lives, it's like looking through binoculars, right? When we look through them, all of a sudden, everything is up close. Whoa. Whoa. Man, Doug, you're not looking good tonight, man. I see you out there. Yeah, you're struggling tonight. Pastor Josh there in Shelby, I'm looking through the screen and I see you out there. Yeah, you, you, did you get up early this morning? Uh, right, what happens? Now everything's magnified. So the situations come in our lives, it's magnified. It's bigger than it seems. But what happens? All of a sudden for the sailors, God flips the perspective. See, the storm isn't what they're looking at anymore. Now the magnification is coming back on themselves and they're saying, wait a minute, this isn't the storm that we should be fearful of. This is God who's coming after us. This is God who's coming after Jonah. This is God coming and working in the midst of this. All of a sudden, he flips their fear. Now, by the way, remember last week we looked at Mark chapter four. I wanna show you, this is powerful. Mark chapter four, remember Jesus in a boat with the disciples? And there's a storm and Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. Remember that? And then Jesus, they go wake Jesus up and say, do you not care that we're drowning? And then it says this, Mark 4, 39, beautiful passage. It says, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of the storm. But watch what happens. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who is this that the wind and the seas obey him? Do you see what happened in that text? They're looking, and as Jesus comes and says, why are you afraid of the storm that's magnified in front of you? And what does he do? He flips it over. Now all of a sudden, they're not afraid of the storm anymore. They're afraid of Jesus who now has the power of the storms. And now it says they're filled with great fear because they realize it's him who is able to cause the wind and the seas to obey him. 
That's exactly what happens here in Jonah. All of a sudden, these sailors who believe that this storm is after them, they realize now it's the God of the universe. They change the object of their fear. See, there's a big difference between fearing God and being afraid of God. And here we see the sailors cease being afraid of the gods, and now they begin to fear the God who is in control. Secondly, this builds here, if you have a right fear with a right response, it, it causes you to no longer look to blame others, but seek God's direction for yourself. Remember at the beginning, they were blaming, they're casting lots, and all of a sudden now, they're not casting lots, they're not blaming, now they're saying, what can we do? By the way, notice the progression. I want to show you this. It's pretty powerful. Notice verse 7. They come together. Let's cast lots. We may know whose account this is, and the storm has come. We want to find out. We want to know who this is. Who is to blame? Notice verse 10. It says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, What is this that you have done, Jonah? Notice it goes to Jonah. You have done this. But notice where it ends, verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? Do you see what happened? All of a sudden they went from blaming one another, looking at everybody else, to saying, Wait a minute, what? can we do? See, when we have a right fear that leads to a right response, we don't blame everybody around us. We start to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? How am I to respond, God? How am I to respond? Because my fear is not this circumstance. My fear is you. I'm in awe of you. I realize you're in control. See, right fear doesn't ask why. Right fear asks what? What should I do? What am I to do? How do I respond? God, give me insight into how I respond to this. Now, you'll notice Jonah, right? Jonah responds, and they say, Jonah, what do we do? And Jonah says, throw me in. Just toss me overboard. Now, we read this, and it would seem as if Jonah's being the hero, isn't it? Like Jonah's saying, like the hero of the story, just toss me in and I will die for you. There are three options that Jonah has, right? He can stay on the ship and sink with them. He, he can throw himself overboard and drown in the sea, or he can turn the boat around and say, let's go back. Now, I don't know about you, what would have been the hero response here? The hero response would have been, God, I'm in sin. Sailors, I'm in sin. I gotta turn this boat around. I need to go back. That's gonna stop the storm. But instead, follow me here, he plays into their beliefs. He plays into their pagan heathen beliefs. He says, no, 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 you've got to appease the God, and so in order to cease the storm, you've got to throw me overboard. You've got to sacrifice here. You've got to get rid of me. Do you know what he's doing? He's playing into their belief that the gods need to be appeased with blood. He's playing into their beliefs about the pagan gods. He's actually not giving them a hero. He's actually being the anti-hero. He, he is actually being the villain and, and ceasing to care for them. But notice their reaction. This blows my mind. This, this is amazing. Notice verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They don't even believe what Jonah is saying to them. See, all of a sudden, they're beginning to awake to the character of God, that God who is holy and right and, and creator is actually also merciful because this God hasn't killed Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah. And they keep rowing. By the way, another irony here is that we find the sailors having more compassion for one man than Jonah had for thousands. They keep rowing. Finally, they're left with one option, that is to throw them overboard. And that leads to point three, and that is this. A right response to fear cries out for strength to obey 
not for an out from obeying. Right? If we respond rightly to the fear of God, all of a sudden it's not, it's not an out from obeying, it's actually God help me obey. Notice their response in verse 14. By the way, this is where I believe true change begins to happen and really what goes on in their hearts, we're not sure how this all plays out in the Old Testament, but, but notice what it says, therefore they called out to the Lord. I want you to notice the change even in our English. Do you notice this? The capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it comes up three times. Now they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay, not, lay, it, lay it not on us, this innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleases you. Do you know what they're saying there? Notice they use this capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is the name of the covenant God, the God of Israel. This is the name of the faithful, loyal God, and they're calling out, and they're saying, God, you are the one that does as you please. We can't do anything else but obey you. What do you want us to do? They're calling out and saying, we're willing to do whatever it is that you want, God. Oh, Lord, this faithful covenant great character God. They're realizing the character of God is of loyal love. That's what they're calling him, the God. This is that, that, that name that means loyal and faithful. And then we find this last observation that's this, that a right fear and right response produces intentional worship and deeper commitment. In verse 16 it says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they made an offering of sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to God. Many believe this was the transformation of their lives, how that looked going forward. This is obviously pre-Christ, we don't know. But they realized that they had to sacrifice. They realized who this God was, and they responded with intentional worship and deeper commitment. See, they realized that this storm was not a result of their sin. This storm was not punishment, but it was intervention. And can I tell you something in our lives? This is how God works. See, God calls us to fear him, but not be afraid of him, but to fear him with a holy awe, holy respect, a holy perspective, uh, not based upon the fact that he can judge us, which he can, but based upon his character of love and forgiveness, based upon his character of faithfulness. I love what Luke 1 says. It says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let me repeat that. His mercy is for those who fear him. What happens? When we fear the Lord appropriately, we understand his mercy. We understand what he's doing in our lives. We're not afraid of God, but we fear God. And we fear God, we, we fear him because we know his character. We know his affection for us. I love what C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, says. He said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is our liberation. He brings us freedom. When we fear him, there's freedom in that fear, why? Because fear then enacts faith and we respond in obedience. We respond with obedience that leads to deeper worship and a greater commitment to him. This evening, do you fear God? Today, do you fear God? Do you fear him? Shelby, do you fear him? Not talking about are you afraid of God, but do you fear God? If you're here without Christ, you know, for you, there should be a holy fear of God. The fact that his life is in your hands, the fact that the scripture says we're going to answer for our lives before this holy God, it should cause a little bit of fear, and that fear should then cause response. That, that's what we see in these sailors, right? We have to respond to him. 
And so if you're here, you're there in Shelby and, and, and you don't know Christ, could it be that God is calling you to fear him above all? That we could be afraid of spiders and heights and all these other things, but ultimately our lives are in his hands. And so that fear should drive us into the grace of God, should drive us into the mercy of God, should drive us into the reality of the goodness of a God who came. By the way, let's not escape the picture here, right? Here is Jonah, who they have to sacrifice because he's brought wrath, the wrath of God upon them. But then Jesus comes. Jesus who comes, and he sacrifices himself by becoming our wrath. By becoming the wrath of the Father that should be toward us, he takes the wrath. See, Jonah incurred the wrath of God, but, but Jesus comes and takes the wrath of the Father for us. So fear becomes liberation. Fear becomes freedom. Fear becomes faith. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, we want to implore you, stop by next steps. We'd love to pray with you. We have people that are praying for you right now that would love to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you know Christ. Do you fear God above everything else in this world? Is the fear of God calling you into obedience? Not afraid of God, but in fear of God. Fear in a holy sense that, God, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I'm not going to blame others for what happens. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to respond with, with obedience, respond with worship, respond with commitment. You know, I always struggled with the fear of God when I was younger. I, when, I, when I viewed the fear of God, I always thought the fear of God was like when you're driving the car and the police officer pulls up behind you. You ever have that happen? And that police officer pulls up, and what happens? I don't know about you, but, but if I'm driving and I'm just cruising along, all of a sudden I sit up a little straighter, I put my hands at 10 and 2, I make sure to put every blinker on at every, every stop sign and every light, right? All of a sudden, I drive a little bit more careful. And as you know, that experience happens quite often for me. But I used to view the fear of God in that way. Can I tell you something? Get this tonight. Get this today. The fear of God. The, the fear of God is not... It's not the officer behind us. It's our father behind us. You know, when your dad's behind you, what happens? All of a sudden, you, you straighten up a little bit, you hold it 10 and 2, but you also know there's a safety net there, right? That the father's following, but he's not following to catch you in, in a, an act of disobedience. No, he, he, he's trying to make sure you're protected. And, and the father is trying to make sure you get home safely. Yeah, you might use your turn signals and it might stop correctly at the stop lines, but, but what's happening when you're, when you're driving on your own, you're not completely on your own because the presence of the Father is there. And the fear of the Lord, that's what it is, right? It, it means that our life is lived through our Heavenly Father as we see Him in the mirror working in our lives. We glance up and we see the brilliance of His holiness, but in that we see care and love. And our response is that we drive all the better because we fear the Father who is with us. Would you stand with me as we pray and then we're going to end with a song. Do we fear the Lord? And does that fear call us to deeper commitment and greater surrender? God, I want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Jonah. God, I pray that you would turn the places of our lives where we're afraid into a fear of you. And then as the fear of you overtakes our faith, it enacts our faith so that now we respond not in fear that holds us back, but in fear that drives us forward. Fear that calls us to obedience. 
to a deeper surrender and a greater commitment. God, we live in a world that seems to not be afraid of you. And not just afraid of you, but fear you, holy fear. God, I pray we as a people would not, not be afraid of fear, but we would see fear as a response to your goodness. That God, when we fear you, we, we fear you because we get your affection for us. We know of your love for us, your faithfulness toward us. And so God, may we respond by fearing you all the more and realizing that fear demonstrates itself in love to us, in grace to us, and in mercy to every generation. All for your name. The creator, the God of the storm, the creator of all, the God who is sovereign. In your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's end together as we sing this song in declaration to the goodness of God.